Welcome to Grace Life Church Podcast. If you would like any more information about us, please visit our website, gracelife.com.au. Okay, so let's open up our Bibles and we're going to go to First Chronicles and you can put your finger in uh, chapter 21 and 22. And I want to give you a little bit of context here for what's happened. Now, we discussed all about how uh, David sinned. He sinned, first of all, he should have been out on the battleground. He should have been out the war at the times the kings were out at war. He saw a woman bathing named Bathsheba and that really began a downward spiral, not just of adultery, but also of uh, he concealed his sin and he eventually really uh, was experiencing the consequences of that sin. Important for us to understand that when God forgives us, that doesn't mean that there are no consequences associated with that. And we see that in David. For quite a number of years, he is having to outlive and out, uh, uh, he is having to experience the outworking of the consequences. And also important for us to note that David did struggle with a couple of things. He did lie, right? This wasn't the first time that he sinned. And in fact, it wasn't the last time that he sinned either. God had given him an appointment of being the king of Israel and he sinned, he messed up, and he messed up again after that. But he was still recognized as a man man after God's own heart. There were moments where he was a man after his own heart, but we still remember him as a man after God's own heart. And being a person does not mean that we are free from sin. Being a person after God's own heart means we just want what he wants. We, we are in pursuit of him. We are living for his honor and not our own. And so we then fast forward to chapter 21, and David uh, is clearly told by God to not count the people in Israel. Have a census. What happens? He disobeys. He numbers everyone in the nation of Israel. There's a lot of conjecture as to why he actually uh, was not allowed to. There's a lot of conversations around it. At the end of the day, he disobeyed God. He did not do. He knew that he was not supposed to do something. And with great power comes great responsibility. And so consequences for disobedience increases, particularly when you are given responsibility. David, as he disobeys God and he does the cast to choose what the consequence for the nation is. He eventually chooses, okay, God, if, if, if I'm given a choice, then I, I choose for my people, the people that you've called me to watch over, for there to be um, a plague and pestilence. And so there was a period of time where God's people suffered as a result of David's disobedience. We then pick up the story at the end of that where David comes back to God. This is a very key thing. To being a person after God's own heart is to appreciate repentance, changing of the mind, to come back to the top, to come back to God's perspective on something. When we err and if and when we err from God and we're going to wrestle, we're going to struggle, those points will come. None of us are free from this experience. We will struggle with sin. Come back to God. Have his mindset on something. Repent. And that's what... That's where we see David pick up the conversation now. He, um, 
He has something in his heart. And that thing in his heart is to build a temple for God because he so loves God. He really loves God. He appreciates the presence of God and he so very much wants to throw his resource and his devotion into building a temple for God. So he scours the place. Where can we find the plot of land? Where is it going to be? And we pick up um, at the end of verse 21. It's actually at this uh, place called the threshing floor. Threshing floor was a place um, often on a higher area or a mound or a mount where there was a little bit more wind and it was a sifting that kind of would take place. You would have someone that would get grain and wheat and would uh, throw it up in the air and the wind would blow away, blow away the bits of seed that are not required. The seed would fall to the ground and then there would be a collection of that seed. So it was a processing place, a sifting place. And so at the end of chapter 21, David looks to purchase this plot of land. And in verse 1 of chapter 22, we read that here in this place shall be the house of the Lord. And here, the altar of burnt offering for Israel. David commanded to gather together the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel. Aliens is not green aliens from Mars. They're not Martians. Aliens, people that were foreigners, were in the land of Israel. And he set stone cutters to prepare dressed stones for building the house of God. David also provided iron for nails for the doors of the gates and for clamps, as well as bronze in quantities beyond weighing, and cedar timbers without number for the Sidonians and Tyrians brought great quantities of cedar to David. Verse 5 then says, For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all the lands. Preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. Often in the Old Testament, we can see what writers would do is they would give you a bigger picture and then they would take time to readdress and find a detail what that bigger picture would look like. And so here we're 22, there is the bigger picture, the, the big picture, and then we're going to read in a little while how uh, the chronicler, who we're not, un, we're not 100% certain who wrote this, but the chronicler uh, then breaks down exactly what the preparations would look like. So... Um, I want to get some help today from reading from the Bible. So I've got Emma. Emma, would you just read for us, please, from just preceding that chapter. We're going to go from uh, verse 22 through to verse 1 of chapter 22. If you can read that, please, Em. Sorry, just clarifying, that's 22 of chapter 21. Correct, yeah. Yeah, okay. And David said to Ornan, Give me the site of the th a threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, Take it, and let my lord the king do what seems good to him. Give the oxen for burnt offerings, and the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. But King David said to Ornan, No, but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. 
So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back into its sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan and the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering, were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the Lord. Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. There we go. Here shall be the house of the Lord. Now, uh, Gary Baker is a real estate agent. And they say in real estate, it's all about location, location, location. Don't they say that, Gary B? Location, location, location. I live in Marangaroo, and I'm grew, but I must be honest with you, I was walking down the coast yesterday, I was, I was praying, and I said, gee, Lord, I'd love a house right here in Hillary's overlooking the ocean. Just being out here, Lord, do you know how good it would be for you and me to spend some time overlooking the ocean? I don't know where the money's coming from, Lord, but I tell you, this spot right here. Are you picking up what I'm putting down right there? Now think about this. This is a big deal. David has in his heart something extravagant for God. It's in his heart. And so location is critical. What is it about this location? David doesn't just come up to this location. Mm, I think I like it here. He goes to a place where there is a threshing that takes place. There is a sifting that takes place. There is eventual sacrifice that takes place. And David could receive this land for nothing. But David knew how important it was to have some skin in the game. David did not want something for nothing because he wanted this to be an expression of his love for God. He wanted this to be an act of worship from him. So he throws up, what, 600 shekels of gold. 600 shekels of gold. That's 6.6 kilos of gold. That's a lot of gold right there. So he makes a decision. I want something. I am going to purchase this land. Yes, I know I can get it for free, but I want this to be an act of worship from me because true worship is always built on the bedrock of sacrifice. And I think sometimes as Christians, we fall into this trap of thinking we confine worship to a half an hour experience on a Sunday morning. Where if we're in the mood, and if Josie, and Joe, we might just raise our hands. Oh, the worship was good today, Josie. Oh, I love that song. That's me, my son. That's all I love that song. As though we're the audience of worship. Hello? <laughs> it's going quiet all of a sudden. Worship is more than just a 30, 35 minute. If the Holy Spirit tarries, it might even go for 40 minutes. Worship is more than that. Worship is living. It's a life. It's a living sacrifice. David wants to pour himself out as a sacrifice because if there is no cost, there is no worship. Worship will always come at a cost to you in some way, shape, or form. If there is no cost paid, your worship is cheap. And worship is an expression of love. Worship, that's what it is. 
Worship to God is just an outpouring of love to Him. We don't need to complicate it. It's, it's an expression of love. I worship you, Lord, with our time, with our talents, with our treasures. So, so if you're taking notes, write this down. Don't be a cheap lover. Don't be a cheap lover. Love was designed to cost you something. I love my family. I've got three beautiful but increasingly expensive daughters, six and eight. And I love my wife incredibly, also can be expensive. And I don't know if I've shared this publicly before, but the way that we do our finances in our house, like this is how I work, you know, I've got a background, I did financial control when I did uh, my thesis in engineering, the importance of uh, making sure you handle your finances correctly. For me, it's about stewardship as well as different accounts. Like We have heaps of them. And we set aside money every week. Money goes into different online accounts for rates, for um, utilities, for kids, and then we get pocket money. I get pocket money. Kylie gets pocket money. And so whenever I buy a gift for my kids or buy some flowers for my wife, um, Personal, I have a personal conviction. I want that to come out of my pocket money, not out, not out of our general bank balance. That might mean that I'll have less pocket money at, at the end of the day, but this is a personal thing for me. My girls, <laughs> they want increasingly expensive things. One of them asked the other day, hey, Dad, I want a horse. I said, you want a freaking what? Who told you about a horse? Why do you want a horse? I'll give you something else, man. Um. And so that's not just to try and brag about how, oh, it's coming out of my pocket. No, that's just, for me, this is a personal conviction. When I take my kids out, if I buy a bunch of flowers or a gift for my wife, I want, I want to pay a price for that because it means something to me. When my kids spend time drawing me a great, beautiful picture or doing me a wonderful painting and it's just look at the product, the finished product, as messy and or beautiful as it is, I look at the time that it's spent, the cost that was placed into that, the effort put into it, oh, that means so much. And I reckon our Father in Heaven looks at that with me and with us. That worship was not a sport of convenience. It's a joyful cost, which at the end of the day, is it really a cost when we consider him and how good he is? Genuine love will always show itself in a personal cost. Let's think about God. God did not love us from a distance, did he? What did he do? He died for us. Christ died for the ungodly. Imagine God from a distance saying, hey, yeah, humanity, you're messed up. You're full of sin. You're rife with rebellion. There's greed, there's idolatry, it's, it's throughout humanity. But I want to tell you something, I love you, but from a distance I want to tell you I love you. He didn't just say he loved, he did something about it and it costed him. So Jesus came to die to save. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave. So you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. For God so loved the world, His only Son, 
1 John 3.16 says this, By this we know love that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. John 15.13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Love will show through action. Worship will show itself through a cost or a sacrifice. So there is a sacrifice that takes place on this threshing floor. And after this act of sacrifice, after the... David realizes this sacrifice right here, this act of worship right here, this place of cost now is the bedroom. It's on this place that God did great things. It's at this location that God showed up. I wonder what sacrifice we're experiencing right now that if we just channel to God, God says, I honor that. I'm going to meet you in that place. I'm going to meet you in that sweet smelling place, that aroma. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're feeling broken on the inside. Give it to God. It's in the breaking of the alabaster box that the fragrance smelt, the aroma, the pouring out of that beautiful oil. It's when we crush the eucalyptus leaves that we smell it. It's in the breaking, it's in the crushing, it's in the cost, it's in the sacrifice. If we would just have our hearts this morning or, or perhaps it's in this season and say, oh Lord, I, I feel this, this, at the moment there is a cost in my life with what I'm outpouring. I give it to you. Let him come and build. So when it comes to God, don't be a cheap lover. Put yourself on the altar. Hey, this is what um, D.L. Moody once said to that. He says, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. How true is that? We're called in Romans 12 to be living sacrifices and so an altar of pl- uncomfortable. It's too uncomfortable, Lord. But let's get back on it again. We're going to read on. Can we read on uh, from verse 6 through to verse 10? Thanks, Sam. Then he called for Solomon, his son, and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, Much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on earth. Behold, a son shall be born to do you who shall be, to, sorry, to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies. For his name shall be Solomon and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Beautiful. Thank you, Em. Think about that for a moment. It was in David's heart. Whose heart was it in? God's or David's? It's in David's heart. David wanted to do this. It was in David's heart. David carried this passion for God. But what's interesting is that God partnered with what was in David's heart. Do you know that it's important for us to know God will, part- will do that? 
He won't always do it, but when there are things that are big and beautiful, bigger than ourselves, do is give it to God and to honor God and, and, and see His name glorified. He says, I love that. I'm attracted to that. Let me come and work with you on it. This was not a, a selfishly ambitious move from David. He genuinely was a worshiper. He loved the presence of God. He thought that, that the world would see how great his God was, and God loved that. But what happened in verse 8? But the word of the Lord came to me saying, You've shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. God told him, No. No. There are consequences. And in this next season, the kingdom is to experience life and not death. Has God ever said no to you? You've got to be okay with not getting your way. You need to be okay with that. I like getting my way. Am I the only one? Yes, the only one that likes getting your way. You selfish so-and-so. Be okay with not getting your way. And you'll note this, that God's no will test your ego. The three letters, E-G-O, the three letters, ego, at the core, that, 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 is, that is, I want my way. It's, it's, it's a very selfish, self-centered thing. This. When God says no, we're going to cop it on the chin. Think about this. David could have said, what? No. You're telling me no, but this is for you, Lord. But he had a good relationship with God. He knew his God was kind and merciful. And he knew that he had to take responsibility. Take responsibility. Take responsibility. There's a word for someone. Take responsibility. When God says no to you, let it be a no. We teach our to respect our no's. As parents, we say no to our children. Good parenting learns to say no. Bad parenting says, okay, you can have whatever you want. Today's day and age, we see disobedience to parents on the rise. And every, under the sun, is attributed to children through our lack of parenting. We label them with things because of our abdication of responsibility. Oh, gee, I better get off the stage now. Right. Parents, we have a responsibility to raise our children in the ways of God and to teach them right from wrong. Oh, I just want them to work their way th through life. Sure, they're only two years old, but they, you know. They develop at, until the age of about 25, 26. Neuroscientists are now saying brains are still developing even in 20, 21, 22, 23-year-olds. I'm 39 and my brain's still developing. Maybe. We teach our children to say no. To, to, to receive the no. To respect the no. I had a tip from one of my girls just the other day. She had in her heart, she wanted to do baking. She wanted to bake this grandiose cake. She didn't have a recipe. She didn't have all the ingredients, but it was in her heart to get it done. 
Sure, she's only four years old, but she really had it in her heart. And when I said no, she did not like it. But I, I love her more. Why is it that as we get older, even as parents, we don't like hearing no anymore? We learn as a younger, as in our younger years, no is just a part of life. As we get older, it's almost like, oh, I'm an adult now. You can't say no to me. What you, when, when we get told no, we leave, we walk out, we change jobs, we, whatever it might. Perhaps that's God saying no to you. If God were to say no to you, what would it sound like? There's the Holy Ghost right there. About 14, no, about, yeah, about 14, 15 years ago, I was in this, we were called City International Church back then, and I, I wanted to leave the church. I wanted to leave this church community. And at the time, I was actually a youth pastor. So it's not like I didn't have opportunity. It's not like I didn't get financial support. It wasn't that I didn't have recognition. I just want to leave. I mean, God, I, I think I need to go. I think that maybe I've, I've grown big enough. I feel like a big fish in a small tank and, and realized was that, that I was just too unsettled in my spirit. It was something in me, not in the church. But at the time, I didn't, I didn't know that. So for me, I'm like, God, I think you need me to, to go. I think you want me to go. Surely you do. And I then was offered a, a job from another pastor in, in actually one of Australia's largest churches to come over and be a pastor with them. And I thought, oh, this is surely the Lord. This is the Lord's doing. Greener pastures. But God said, no, I haven't said this to you. I've brought you here. I haven't told you to leave. He said, no. And I didn't like it. I'll be honest with you. I just didn't like it. My flesh wanted to go and start afresh and do something else. And can I tell you in hindsight now, I am so grateful for God's no back then. Because God's no to me back then has led to a lot. It's only when we're confronted with that opportunity for ego to be brought into check that we see what comes to the surface to be dealt with. God's no to you is not a no about you. When God says no to you, he's not saying I'm not for you. He's just saying no to you. When I say no to my kids, I'm not saying I'm not with you guys. I'm not, it's not, I'm not saying I don't love you. I'm just saying no to that. Why? Because I know something you don't. I'm trying to show you something. I have a different perspective. So, here's an encouragement to us all. When you are confronted with a no, don't have a hissy fit. Just swallow your pride. I'm just going to say that with a smile. When God says no, and consider, ask yourself this question, what does a no look like? He might say no to you through a parent, through a child, through a boss, through a church leader, through a spouse. He might say no through a range of different areas. Don't get upset. Just say, okay, God, what are you, are you trying to show me something here? 
So be okay with not getting your way. We see this with David. David was more infatuated than he was with himself. He could have at this point says, oh, what, you're telling me no about this idea? Well, up your nose with a rubber hose, Lord. I'm off. I'm not doing this temple thing. Stuff ya. He didn't say that. He didn't say, oh, I was doing this for your glory anyway, and now you're telling me no? Be okay with not getting your way. There's a bigger picture. There's a bigger picture. Can you read the last part for us, Em? Just from verse 11 to verse 19, please. Now, my son, the Lord be with you, so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God, as he has spoken concerning you. Only, may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. With great pains I have provided for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold, a million talents of silver and bronze and iron beyond weighing, for there is so much of it, timber and stone too, I have provided. To these you must add, you have an abundance of workmen, stone cutters, masons, carpenters, and without number, skilled in working, gold, silver, bronze and iron. Arise and work, the Lord be with you. David also commanded all the leaders of Israel to help Solomon his son, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you peace on every side? For he has delivered the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord and his people. Now set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God, through of the Lord God, so that the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy vessels of God may be brought into a house built for the name of the Lord. Brilliant. Do you know one thing I feel that really helped David with all of this? Is he, is he had to have God's perspective on this. See, we serve a God of the generations. I, I understand we're in a largely individualistic society. We're very personal. It's all about me and, and we're, we're saved. We're doing God this great thing by giving our lives to him. Don't you see what I've done for you, Lord? <laughs> we're caught up in his bigger picture, in his story. We're caught up in the story of redemption. We get to be saved, right? We so when we, even when we read the Bible, we can often personalize it. What, what is God saying exactly to me? Well, when God writes the Bible, he's writing to groups of people. He's writing to communities and to families. He's writing to nations. That's what he's doing. And we get to peer in. And, and theological discussion now, this is why it's important for us to not look eisegetically, but exegetically at the Bible. What does that mean? Don't just throw yourself in there and let everything speak to you personally. Take a step back back and allow the scripture and the story speak to you and then after that ask Holy Spirit what are you saying to me in the process so David when he has a look at this uh, uh, this story he sees oh man so this temple idea right I'm dealing with a God of generations and I establish his lineage his future lineage through mine so I'm going to hand this on. The baton is going to be passed on to my son and I'm going to construct this in such a way. I'm going to set him up for the future. So when in doubt, zoom out. When you're ever in doubt, zoom 
out because God is bigger than just the here and the now. This is a message that's not just confined to the Old Testament. We also see it in the New Testament. Have an eternal perspective. Think on things that are above. You'll hear this constantly referred to in the New Testament. We're encouraged to see things from from the kingdom perspective, from eternal perspective. So David has to now think, what's in my heart? It can't just start and stop with me. This is something for future generations. Anyone been to Europe before? Been to Europe? Anyone been to in Spain? Anyone ever been there? You have? Have you, um, have you been to see Sagrada Familia? The Basilica. There's a massive basilica, beautiful, in Barcelona. Olé. Are we going to get pictures up there? I know we're having issues with the tech. Look at that. Isn't that beautiful? Um, construction of this uh, began about 150 years ago. Next slide, thanks. Night time. Uh, next picture. That's on the inside. I went there with Kylie in 2007 for our honeymoon. Isn't that just beautiful? Uh, but, have a guess what? It's still under construction. It's actually uncomplete. It's, it's not complete yet. Next, last picture, thanks. That's what it looks like. When you zoom out, you get a different picture. There's actually construction that's still taking place. It's not uncommon for the cathedrals throughout have taken, in fact, hundreds of years to construct. Often 200, 300, 400, sometimes 500 years for these massive buildings to be constructed. Now, that is actually quite foreign to us in today's day and age. Because we want things done by yesterday. We're a microwave generation dealing with a crockpot God. And we get upset when six months too long to build. But imagine being one of the people that have been working on a cathedral like this. That you're not going to be there to worship at the end of the day. Most of the people that were involved with the construction of these cathedrals would actually never get to experience worshipping in these places. Isn't that an interesting thought? So, it takes great character through knowing that you may never see the fruit of it. David's a man of character. He appreciated the heart of God. He was aware of the consequences of his actions and of his sin, but he was still committed to the cause. I heard this great quote one time it says society thrives when people plant trees under whose shade they will never sit isn't that it thrives when people plant trees under whose shade they know they'll never sit parents understand this that we we love our children so much that we want to set them up for the future and even the generations to come so this is important for us to understand people that is as, as we deal with a generational God, we have an opportunity to deal generationally with those that come after us. Decisions that you make to in, the t- in today, it lasts a lot longer than just today. Check this out. David had eight or so wives and a number of concubines. Eight wives? I reckon one's enough. Eight. And he wasn't supposed to. He wasn't allowed to. There was a decree in Deuteronomy that, that you were not to be in any uh, polygamous 
relationships. But God still allowed him in his sin to have multiple wives. There was immorality. David struggled with it. But his son Solomon had how many wives? Anyone know? 700 wives. 700? <laughs> what are you going to do with 700 wives? That's 300 concubines. Are you nuts? <laughs> so much for the wisest man. You know, Solomon. So the sin of his father was multiplied. How many issues are we going to allow to pass through us for our kids to contend with? I grew up with dad. My, my dad, has, he's not so angry in his later years, but he'll tell you this. So it's okay for me to say. He, he, I saw him very angry from a young age. But when I saw his father in anger, I really understood. I saw where my dad got it from. And I had to make a decision, what would I do with anger within me? Because I didn't want the issues or the sins of my father coming through. And if Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Maybe it's not sexual immorality for you as it was David. Maybe it's deception. Deal with it. Maybe it's greed. Deal with it. Maybe it's financial mismanagement. Deal with it. Maybe it's gluttony. Deal with it. Maybe it's uh, 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 maybe it's rebellion. But we have an opportunity to set up for the future and honor God through the generations. I want my kids to go further than me. I want the next leader of this church community to go even further and, and higher than me. Like, there are more people to be impacted, more people to be served and loved on. But God dwells in in an eternal and even intergenerational paradigm. And so let's zoom out and see it from his perspective that what he put in David's heart was carried through Solomon to which Jesus then came. Now let's go back to this, uh, and we'll finish with this, the, the location of the temple. Do you know where the temple is built? Anyone know the name of the place? Where the temple was built? Mount Moriah. Can we show a picture, please, of Mount Moriah? That's the gold thing there. That's the Dome of the Rock. Temple Mount just there. Mount Moriah. Now, talking about a generational God who sees the bigger picture. That's today, thousands of years later. But do you know before... That was constructed before chapter 21 and 22, Mount Moriah. There was another sacrifice that was made on Mount Moriah a few hundred years before, with Abraham offering up his son Isaac 
on that very same mount where there was sacrifice, where there was a cost, where there was worship that was offered, God later came back to to build upon on this mount, on this hill, our God. He sees beyond the here and the now. He looks with a bit more. Which is why I think in many respects, I'm enjoying the fruit now of the labor of people that have gone before me. The prayers of the saints of those that are before me, hundreds of years, thousands of years before me. So, we then see this, not just David and Solomon, as a type of Jesus or Abraham and Isaac as the son being offered up on Mount Moriah as a type of Christ. There, where there was a sacrifice that was offered. Where there, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect worship was offered. And of course, that is Jesus, where there is a hill a couple of thousand years later and that type of Mount Moriah and Calvary, there was a hill where there was a sacrifice of worship that was pleasing to God. And it's only through that perfect and complete sacrifice that we can enjoy. It's only through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus that every cost that we pay is pleasing because without that sacrifice, every other sacrifice would pale in insignificance. It's only because of that sacrifice that we can deal with things in our lives. So as we finish now, I'm just going to have a time of waiting, just for a couple of minutes. And I want to come to that moment, to come to that recollection of what was done for us on the cross. Thank you for that sacrifice. But Lord, what do you want me to bring to you to that mount today? Is there something there that I've just got to bring to you and offer to you to be put upon that cross today? We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast from Grace Life Church. For more information about us or any of our services, please visit our website at gracelife.com.au.